Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by the Historic Districts Council, the citywide advocate for New York's historic buildings and neighborhoods. For over 50 years, HDC has been the only citywide organization that works directly with the constituency of over 500 local community organizations across all five boroughs to preserve and protect New York's rich architectural, historical, and cultural heritage working to landmark and protect significant neighborhoods and buildings, and understanding and upholding the New York City Landmarks Law. For more information, visit hdc.org. Funding for this episode is provided by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, in partnership with the City Council and Councilmember Benjamin Kalos. The Bowery Boys Episode 390, The Story of Flatbush, Brooklyn, Old and new. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers with a tale of one of the most interesting and iconic neighborhoods in New York. And a very old place. We're headed to the Brooklyn neighborhood of Flatbush, south of Prospect Park. Over 350 years ago, Flatbush was a Dutch village. And dare we say, rural, in fact, with farms and wheat fields. Now contrast that with today's Flatbush, (laughs) a place diverse in both housing styles and people and an anchor of Brooklyn's Caribbean community. Now, when you say Flatbush uh, to a Brooklynite of a certain age, the first thing that might get discussed is perhaps the Brooklyn Dodgers, who once played baseball in Ebbets Field here. Uh, Or maybe they know a famous person or two who was born or grew up in Flatbush, like Barbara Streisand or... Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Bernie Sanders. You know, Tom, I actually think of the uh, Henry Winkler gang movie, The Lords of Flatbush. Yes. But then, you know, I'm, I'm, weird, like, <laughs> I'm weird like that. <laughs> Most people, however, are probably familiar at least with Flatbush Avenue, the 9.9 mile long avenue which links the Manhattan Bridge with the Rockaways, rolling through the neighborhood of Flatbush along the way. I mean... One can imagine what it was like back in the day, taking the trolley the whole Mm. way down Flatbush Avenue, maybe getting out to the Grand Movie Palace Mm -hmm. called the King's Theater, or jumping out at Church Avenue to get some matzo ball soup at Garfield's. But you can still do those things today, Greg. I mean, instead of a trolley, it's the B-41 bus. 
Uh, King's Theater is still there. They do live shows today, not movies. And for a bite, well, maybe it's not matzo ball soup, but you can have a delicious roti or Jamaican oxtail. Mm. So our perspective today is to look at Flatbush really as a transformational place. A bundle of stories today that reflect its rural, then its suburban, and then finally its urban history. So hop on the trolley. And join us for the story of Flatbush. Do, 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 do. The Lodge of Flatbush is a movie do, 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 do. about how life was in the 50s. A black leather jacket, a rumble or two, and a girl. Ooh. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Well, let's start by situating Flatbush. For those who may not have yet visited, um, I confess that in terms of situating the place, even if you do live there, it's it's a little bit hard to visualize because this is a landlocked neighborhood in the middle of Brooklyn. And when it comes to Brooklyn, we tend to talk about, you know, the waterfront neighborhoods or places with big historical landmarks. But for the most part, Flatbush isn't really that. It's We can say it's south of Prospect Park. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's start with that. Um, yes, its northern border is basically the southern end of Prospect Park. Mm-hmm. But it gets trickier from there, however, because the neighborhood it has been redefined over the centuries at certain points encompassing other neighborhoods around Flatbush. Okay, but to orient ourselves, let's go to one intersection as our gravity point for the show here, okay? And that is Church Avenue and the aforementioned Flatbush Avenue. That point being three blocks south of the southeastern entrance of the park. Okay, Flatbush and Church. And why is this an important intersection? This intersection pops into our story here from the very beginning. Okay, it's almost 370 years old. Hmm. This is the heart of Old Flatbush. Further north of this point is the neighborhood of Prospect Lefferts Gardens, which took its name in the late 1960s to splinter off from the main Flatbush. Then to the west of Flatbush Avenue is a cluster of small neighborhoods collectively known as Victorian Flatbush. Then further south of our intersection here is a neighborhood called Midwood. Remember that name. And then there is a separate neighborhood called East Flatbush that is east of our intersection here. And nobody listening really needs to remember this constellation of neighborhood (laughs) names, Um, although looking at a map would be very helpful. Um, But each of those names will be popping up in our story today. Yes. And we should mention two newer neighborhood arrangements that lay over many of these places that I just mentioned, especially on the east side, Little Haiti and Little Caribbean, destinations which we will be focusing on at the end of our show with a very special guest. So you have really underscored, though, here that we're talking about a very, very old place and an mm-hmm. old intersection. Mm-hmm. Where, where does our story begin? Well, let's actually preface by starting with the original Canarsie tribe, the Lenape people who first lived on these lands. And in fact, if you walk further east, like through East Flatbush, keep on walking, you'll eventually hit the Brooklyn neighborhood of Canarsie 
which is a nod to these people. Mm. Well, as we start many stories, almost 400 years ago, in the 1620s, the Dutch arrived into the harbor that would be known as New York Harbor, and they would set up a port town at the tip of Manhattan Island called New Amsterdam. And then over the years, they began developing small farming settlements throughout the region, sort of beyond that island, and in particular, on today's Long Island. Right. Brooklyn is on Long Island, of course, a vast and varied natural wilderness at the time. And this would be a part of the greater region called New Netherland. Mm Mm-hmm. And the Dutch would eventually form six villages here. Yes, the original six Dutch towns were Brooklyn, Bushwick, New Utrecht, Gravesend, Flatlands, and Midwood, which is the town that settled here and is actually the star of our show today. Midwood. Midwood. (laughs) Midwood. Or Midwood. So then where did the word Flatbush come from? Um, that's a Dutch word, vlakkebus, um, meaning a flat woodland. And in fact, both terms would be used to describe this region. And that, that second name, vlakkebus, the flat woodland, plays a role in why the Dutch settled here in the first place. Right. It seems a little strange at first because it's not near the water, right? It, and it couldn't have been really that easy to get to in the 17th mm-hmm. century. What was appealing about this location? Well, many of these Dutch settlers had been farmers back in Holland. And so this area actually has many topographic similarities to rural Holland. We forget this because, you know, it's all smoothed over, but... But there's actually a lot of natural marshland here on Long Island and not conducive for farming. But on this spot, land here was a flat plain, very ideal for farming and perfect for Dutch settlement. So with use of pre-existing Canarsie dirt paths, the Dutch created the village of Flatbush here in 1651 or 52 at around this intersection of Church and Flatbush today. Although those paths, those original Lenape paths, would have seen only horses and carts at best. Uh, And so if there were Dutch farms lining the paths, what anchored the villages to this particular spot? What was it about this intersection? Well, they built a church, the Dutch Reformed Church. Its construction ordered by the director general of New Amsterdam, Peter Stuyvesant. It was completed in the year 1654. But then just 10 years later, the English arrived, of course, into New York Harbor and take over from the Dutch. And of course, then New Amsterdam becomes New York. But meanwhile, what was happening out here in Flatbush? I doubt that it just sort of magically became an English countryside village. Oh, but, but of course it did, Tom. Everyone started drinking tea and driving on the opposite side of the road. <laughs> now, <laughs> there are carts on the opposite side of Flatbush? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, for more than a century, it would remain Dutch culturally and in language, even as it slowly assimilated into colonial New York. The families who settled here in the years of New Netherland stayed for well into the 18th century and, and even beyond 
Today, many place names here are associated with these very first farms, like Bergen, Ditmus, Martens, Cortelieu, and on and on. Mm. And there are even old Dutch farms standing in the region today, not just near Flatbush, but in many regions around Brooklyn. And the Dutch Reformed Church remained the center of town? Uh, Yeah, it was. It got a huge upgrade in the year 1699, a new structure built from local stone quarries, and also a church cemetery was added. Both of these historic places still stand on that corner today. To quote from the church's landmark designation report, quote, Upon completion of the second church, the practice was begun of burying the dead under the building. All ministers who died after 1701 were interred beneath the church, as were most others whose families could afford to pay the extra expense. Wow, buried under the church. And and the families in question being the local farmers that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. What were their farms actually producing at the time? Uh, Wheat, barley, rye. I mean, just imagine Flatbush today with rolling wheat fields, right? Beautiful. On top of fruit and vegetables as well. And all of these would be taken into New York to sell at market, which brings up another major component of the Flatbush farm economy, slavery. The Dutch relied heavily on the use of enslaved people to cultivate these farms, and this certainly didn't change under the English. In fact, with the opening of a slave market in New York in the year 1711, a place where people were bought and sold, slavery became even more entwined within the region's economy. So then what did the population of Flatbush really look like then in the mid-18th century? Well, a census that I found from 1738 reports that the town of Flatbush had a population of 539 residents and 129 enslaved people. So that is almost a quarter of the town. Wow. And going into the 19th century, Flatbush finds itself unable to unmoor itself from the reliance of enslaved people until it was legally abolished in New York State in 1827. So then how does the town of Flatbush fare during the Revolutionary War? Because there were certainly battles happening around here. Um, Mm -hmm. And by 1776, the town had long been a part of the English colony, but its landowners were still mostly, you know, old Dutch families. Well, you know, much of the Battle of Brooklyn occurs just north of here. And then, of course, for the whole duration of the war, the English occupy not just New York, but the towns of Kings County, including Flatbush. Many farmhouses were burned. Many farms were destroyed. Later on, homes in Flatbush would be used to hold prisoners of war. Now, sometimes residents would actually burn their own homes before escaping so that they would not be used for these kinds of purposes. And that was the case with the home of the Lefferts family, which was destroyed on the onset of war. Okay, so then later in 1783, when the British left the region for good, the Lefferts returned to Flatbush and then rebuilt their farmhouse. Mm. And it still stands, because in the early 20th century, that house 
was moved over in to Prospect Park, where it currently stands today. And it's called the Lefferts Historic House. Just next to the Prospect Park Zoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can hear seals barking from its porch. <laughs> you can. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little far from the center of our story, but it's a good example of what life was like in this region in the late 18th century. Um, but then after the revolution, the, the village got back to doing what it did best, you know, planting, weeding, fertilizing. Just farming. Yes, and it would remain that way throughout most of the 19th century, even as New York City was experiencing explosive growth fueled by, you know, the waves of immigrants arriving from around the world and Americans migrating to New York. Um, But here, this area would largely remain agricultural. Yes, very green acres. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Zsa Zsa. (laughs) Well, meanwhile... North of here, the city of Brooklyn would urbanize greatly during the 19th century, but just not here or really Mm -hmm. any of the other farming villages in today's boroughs of Brooklyn and Queens. Right. And it stayed that way throughout much of the 19th century. Uh, In 1841, the pastor of the Dutch Reformed Church of Flatbush, which you mentioned, a man named Thomas M. Strong, presented a, quote, history of the town of Flatbush as a lecture to the Flatbush Literary Society, uh, which was then published later and included a map. And I encourage listeners uh, to either visit our website or just Google Strong's Map of Flatbush 1842. And you'll see this map. It's pretty much one main drag, one main intersection, and then some additional farm roads shooting off of it. And that intersection being Flatbush and Church. Yes, even if we should point out the names were different back then. Flatbush Avenue on the 1842 map is listed as, rather confusingly, as Fulton Street. And Church is called East Broadway, east of Flatbush, and the road to New Utrecht and Bath, west of Flatbush. But we'll stick with the modern names. It's confusing enough. (laughs) (laughs) And the little squares dotting Flatbush on the map are all labeled with family names. Yes, including several that you've already mentioned. Several Lefferts are listed, along with Mr. Ditmas, um, several Martinses, Dr. Strong himself, the lecturer and the historian, across from the church. Um, The rest read like a Dutch telephone book, Greg. Um, (laughs) There's some Vanderbilts, uh, Van Wyck. Several Vanderveers and... More vans than a 1970s parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> or a Scooby-Doo convention. <laughs> Wait, that doesn't even make sense. All these vans, all these families mm-hmm. lined up neighbors along today's Flatbush Avenue. It really, you know, it sounds a little idyllic, in fact. Raising food for sale in the big market towns of Brooklyn and New York. It must have been quite a journey getting their food to market. Well, it got easier in 1809 when a toll road opened along today's Flatbush Avenue, connecting the village of Flatbush to Brooklyn. And this was a wooden plank road. Oh, that sounds comfortable. My my back is killing me just hearing that. <laughs> well, actually, riding your carriage over wooden planks was a lot better than getting them stuck in the mud or unstuck from the mud. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess I would pay for that. Well, you would have to. Yes, there were there were toll booths along the wooden plank road, one of which, um, as was pointed out on 
Brownstoner still stands today in Prospect Park next to Lefferts Historic House. Mm. Um, it's it's a quirky little green building. Check it out. Um, the author of the piece on Brownstoner points out that you could easily mistake it for a sort of old-timey carousel ticket stand. Oh. But this would still be used to collect tolls until 1889, and later then would be moved here into the park. Mm, okay. So... Would Flatbush essentially just remain a picturesque farming village for most of the 19th century? Incredibly, yes, for most of the century. One Flatbush resident named Gertrude Lefferts Vanderbilt would write her own history of Flatbush in 1881. Now, Gertrude was the daughter of John Lefferts, of the prominent Lefferts family, and a state senator, and she had married Judge John Vanderbilt, of another big Flatbush family and distant relatives of Commodore Vanderbilt. And her book is a fascinating time capsule. I recommend it to anybody who just wants to, as I have done, geek out for about a week with this. She goes back to Strong's map from 40 years earlier and and in many cases then tells what happened to the families who lived in each of these houses and on each and every farm whom they sold to, whom they married, when they died. And I assume were buried in the churchyard at Flatbush and Church? Most of them were, yes. I, I had the good fortune recently to, to spend an hour or so in the churchyard walking along the gravestones. And seriously, Greg, I mean, there they all were. All of the names that you've mentioned, all the names from Gertrude's history of Flatbush. There's Jan Lefferts, who died in 1776, his gravestone written in Dutch. Uh, Many of the old stones are actually in Dutch. Nearby, you'll find several Martins family members who died in the 1770s and 80s, even more Martinses who died in the early 1800s, Garrett, Nellie, Adrian. There's Abraham Ditmus, who died on October 13, 1803, and Cornelius Vanderveer. I mean, they're all there. So many names that live on today in place names. But to be clear, these were mostly white residents. Right. There was an African burial ground located today just a block away, um, just a block east, near the corner of Church and Bedford Avenue, And as you mentioned, slavery was so prevalent in the village of Flatbush, uh, especially as domestic and farm laborers. Even Gertrude Vanderbilt writes extensively about slavery, which was abolished in New York in 1827. But that burial ground um, over at Bedford and Church would not be treated as a sacred space, uh, and it would be built over and developed in the 19th century with a school, and then replaced by another school in the 1870s, which would be Flatbush School Number 1. Um, and, and this building in the 1890s became PS90. And is that school still there? It stood until 2016, when it was demolished because it was no longer safe. And today, an effort is underway called the Flatbush African Burial Ground Coalition to raise awareness of its history and and really to fight to preserve that space from further desecration. And to be clear, unlike a block away of the people buried here, we know almost none of their names. Now, you mentioned that schools once stood on the spot, public schools. Yeah, right. But the biggest and most famous school in the area 
was also just around the corner from here. Uh, there had been a, f- a few different schoolhouses in the village already when a notable new secondary school opened in 1786 called Erasmus Hall Academy, named after the great Renaissance theologian and academic Desiderius Erasmus. It was built just right across today's Flatbush Avenue from the Dutch Reformed Church, and it, it holds the distinction of being the first secondary school chartered by New York State. And was it also founded by the church? The land was donated by the church, and much of the money for the, the school's construction was raised by prominent New Yorkers, including Alexander Hamilton and James Duane and Richard Varick. But also, prominent Flatbush families gave a lot of money, too, including the Lefferts, Vanderbilts, Martinses, Clarksons, and others. Uh, the, this original Erasmus Hall Academy was a handsome federal-style building, which would continue to be used for instruction all the way through the 19th century. And amazingly, you can still see it standing today if you peek through the gate of the Erasmus Hall Academy that would be built there later. But the the original building still stands in its courtyard. Can I go back to that Gertrude Vanderbilt book that you mentioned? (laughs) Please, I have it here. I have it right here. (laughs) Again, you can't do a podcast without putting a Vanderbilt in the middle of it these days. Um, Is this this from the genre of books that waxes nostalgic about the good old days, especially here in Flatbush? (laughs) Oh, did she ever. And by the way, the book is called The Social History of Flatbush and Manners and Customs of the Dutch Settlers in Kings County. Um, She was especially saddened by all of the urban-style development that was happening in her village. Now, she wrote this book in 1881. She had seen... Uh, development happening in stages over the course of many years. She talks about the arrival of trains. The the Willink property, uh, the Willink farm, for example, saw its farmhouse replaced by the depot of the Brooklyn, Flatbush, and Coney Island Railway. Well, I mean, sure, that's a big change, but it definitely made Flatbush more accessible. Yes, for people around the region, you know, who were visiting something else that had opened up here near the northern part of the village, Prospect Park, which opened in the late 1860s and early 1870s. Gertrude wrote, quote, Upon this northern border of the town, which was once so fair a picture of agricultural prosperity, the change into a city suburb has begun. And interesting that she would use this word, suburb. Wouldn't mm-hmm. she write this 1881? That's right, right yeah. Um, and the opening of Prospect Park you know, brought urban life that much closer to Flatbush, even if it also created a little bit of a buffer. Yeah, and the creation of the park would would eat up old farms too, including the original Vanderbilt farm, which is today part of the park. But she writes over and over about the large family farms getting divided up and sold off into lots. And of course, if you're dividing them into lots, that means you're also adding new streets as well. Oh, oh, yeah. We learned from Gertrude that Caton Avenue was opened in 1876 between Mr. Clarkson's farm and General Crook's property. And then Clarkson Street and Franklin Street would then be opened through Mr. Caton's old farm and on and on and on. But the idyllic days of farm life in old Flatbush were about to go away. Flatbush in the 20th century after this. 
This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by the Historic Districts Council, the citywide advocate for New York's historic neighborhoods. In addition to advocating for significant historic and cultural communities, HDC offers a robust series of free and low-cost educational programs throughout the year. Join them for preservation school classes for neighborhood advocates, in-person and virtual walking tours in all five boroughs, and features on their annual Six to Celebrate Priority Neighborhoods. For more information, visit hdc.org. Funding for this episode is provided by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council and Council Member Benjamin Kalos. Well, I don't know about you, Tom, but I'm getting a little tired of the farm life, the cow manure and all of that. Um, New York is where you'd rather stay. (laughs) Yes, I would. I get allergic smelling hay. And in 1894, something inevitable occurs that will get rid of the hay. But, um, But one event which would radically change everything about Flatbush. Now, as you've mentioned, the city of Brooklyn was growing rapidly. In fact, it was one of the largest cities in the United States at the end of the century. But up to the 1890s, the city of Brooklyn did not include every single place within Kings County. Right. So today, the borough of Brooklyn is coterminous with Kings County, meaning that everything in Kings County is part of Brooklyn. But Mm -hmm. but that was not the case here in the early 1890s. No, Flatbush was still its own town. In fact, Coney Island, further south, was still part of the town of Gravesend. It was not a part of Brooklyn then. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and this continued and so on and so on. An interesting arrangement which went by the wayside in the year 1894 when Flatbush and most of the remaining independent parts south of Prospect Park were finally annexed into Brooklyn making it more or less the Brooklyn that we know today. But there was even something bigger on the horizon. Because in 1898, then the entire city of Brooklyn became a part of greater New York and became a borough. So Flatbush, which had been you know, a fairly quiet, independent little town over here, was now a part of a newly consolidated city. And with all of this in the pipeline, then, those old families with their old farms begin rapidly selling off to new developers. And one reason for this is that almost instantly, this area was to become much more accessible, right? The, the Brooklyn, Flatbush, and Coney Island Railway uh, that I mentioned before became part of the BRT, otherwise known as the Brighton Line. This was a huge deal. It was, it was so quiet here for so many years. But suddenly, with these improved connections to the city, you know, Flatbush could now develop like a real suburb. Yes, a, a suburb with various development patterns. Now, to quote Richard Peck, writing about Flatbush in the New York Times, quote, a series of subdivisions gobbled up the old Dutch hamlets in a building spree stilled only by World War I. The result is more Midwestern. There's a whiff of Indianapolis or Evanston, Illinois about these shady streets. 
Even the Brighton Line BMT, which bisects the community, imposes calm in the number of cul-de-sacs it creates, unquote. I would hardly call the place Evanston, Illinois, but (laughs) I get the point. I get the point. Compared to the density of Manhattan's tenement districts, you know, these these places would have privacy, even yards. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that the residents of those former overcrowded districts were incredibly attracted to these new developments. Right. It was Eastern European Jewish residents, along with Irish and Italian, second, third generation, people who worked in Manhattan or downtown Brooklyn, who could commute from a newly constructed home here in Flatbush that offered much more space than before. This change was evident by the year 1909, when the Brooklyn Daily Eagle ran an article with the headline, quote, The development of Flatbush going with rapid strides. According to the article, Flatbush was the third fastest growing district in Brooklyn, behind only East New York and Bay Ridge. Quote, A visitor to the Flatbush region who had not seen it for a 12-month would stare with astonishment at the remarkable changes that had taken place. And you can see so many of these, you know, turn-of-the-century row houses still standing today east of Flatbush Avenue, uh, perhaps concentrated the most in the area of today's Prospect Lefferts Gardens. So that's happening there. But meanwhile, it's quite a different scene on the western side of Flatbush Avenue, south of Prospect Park. Yes. In fact, it's historically taken on a completely different name, Victorian Flatbush, a series of more contained developments with similar architectural styles. So unlike the row houses, which are you know sandwiched together like a typical Brooklyn block if you would go to any other neighborhood, here the homes of Victorian Flatbush were large, detached on tree-lined streets with a very decided air of the countryside, or at very least, the air of a far less populated city. And Victorian Flatbush is a sort of umbrella term, right, for, for many different micro-neighborhoods uh, that, we, that we use today, all, all distinguished by these homes with this Victorian architecture. Um, In fact, it's one of the largest collections of Victorian architecture still standing in the country. Uh, If you've never seen it, you really wouldn't believe it was in the middle of New York City. You know, maybe the most famous district of Victorian Flatbush is Ditmas Park, developed atop the old farmland of Jan von Ditmarsen family later changed his name to Ditmas, a real estate developer named Louis H. Pounds, a man who would later go on to become the Brooklyn Borough president, he bought the land from the Ditmases and then went on to develop these upscale properties in this Victorian style, then afforded them with plenty of room for large green lawns. According to the designation report, quote, Attention was given at Ditmas Park to softening the urban grid with trees and other foliage. All of the houses were were set back behind wide lawns, and small sidewalk malls were planted with trees, including maples, lindens, and tulip trees that have now grown to maturity and are the pride of the neighborhood, unquote. 
I mean, it's got porches. And many have really big lawns. Mm-hmm. And not just here in Ditmas Park, but in many other nearby neighborhoods as well. For instance, just by um, the Dutch Reformed Church, in fact, there's the Albemarle Kenmar Terraces built in the late 19-teens. A few of these homes actually have garages built as mm-hmm. part of their properties, making them some of the ve- the very first homes with private garages built in the United States. Yes, not refitted carriage houses, but actual car garages. So very right. high tech for its day. So long story short, just so much development came to Flatbush in just a couple decades, and then of course brought tens of thousands of new residents. Which meant probably that old Erasmus Hall Academy, with its federal-style mm-hmm. building there, probably needed a serious upgrade. Well, yeah. In fact, it became a public school. Throughout the early 20th century, a brand new campus was developed around those old original structures, as you mentioned, you know, to facilitate classes for thousands of new students. Work began in 1905, but the process, as you can imagine, took many, many decades, with the final major construction ending in the year 1940. It would be one of the largest high schools in New York during the early 20th century, and because of its lineage, it's nicknamed the mother of high schools. And I just have to add one more odd fact that I found in the New York Times. In 1907... Erasmus became the first high school in America fitted with wireless telegraphy, which was used in lectures to teach students about radio waves. So basically, Erasmus students were the first in the country allowed to text in class. (laughs) You could send messages through the air in the class, right? That's That's so innovative. But something else arrived that probably inspired children to instead skip classes. And that was up at the old garbage dump at Bedford and Sullivan that had earned the nickname Pigtown for the pigs that actually once ate here. Well, in 1912 came the groundbreaking for a new baseball stadium completed the following year. That would, of course, be Ebbets Field, Mm. built by Charles Ebbets for his baseball team, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, if we have to mark one date as the moment that Flatbush truly changes, it's April 5th, 1913, when the Dodgers, who were also known by the Superbas back then, they had a lot of names, um, but that was the date that they first played the New York Yankees here. From the Times, quote, The team played in the presence of 25,000 wildly enthusiastic rooters who jammed every amiable inch of space in the immense stadium and at least 7,000 others who witnessed the contest from the bluffs that loom over the field over at Montgomery Street and Bedford Avenue, unquote. And we have an entire episode on Ebbets Field and the Brooklyn Dodgers from a few years back. It's episode number 263. And having the stadium here meant that thousands of New Yorkers and Brooklynites came to Flatbush regularly, and everyone in the neighborhood then threw this team feeling a sense of belonging and attachment. Even today, with the stadium gone and the team long gone, Flatbush is still very associated with the Dodgers. Yes. Well, by the 1920s, as was the case throughout New York City, Flatbush started to get taller. 
uh, developers were no longer so focused on these single-family homes and row houses, as you were mentioning, but instead turned their attention to apartment buildings, uh, especially along the main thoroughfares. But it's interesting to note that many of those single-family houses, those freestanding ones, and of course, many of those row houses still stand in the neighborhood today. Yes, they would continue to sort of coexist with the new apartment buildings going up. Um, You mentioned Richard Peck's article on The Times on Flatbush, uh, which was published in 1973. He wrote about that balance. He wrote, quote, the ubiquitous six-story pseudo-Tudor apartment building came first, followed by the post-war high-rises of Ocean Avenue. But the big square homes along the side streets slumbered through most of this century as the Dutch farmhouses had through most of the last. And so here then, in the mid-early to mid-20th century, we enter into a scene about which many former Brooklynites feel deeply nostalgic. Mid-century Flatbush, home of the Dodgers, of shopping on Flatbush Avenue, of playing in the streets— Greg, I spoke yesterday with a friend of mine who grew up on Ocean Avenue in the 1950s and 60s, and she told me stories of those good old days of fishing in Prospect Park, playing handball in her apartment building's courtyard, of belonging to a group of friends that were Irish, Italian, Jewish. Nobody really cared, she said. Some lived in houses, some in apartments. And, and parents reported to each other if they noticed something that was, you know, that another parent should be aware of. <laughs> wow, how cinematic. I might have seen this movie, in fact. You might have seen it at the King's Theater. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love the King's Theater. So when did this place open? In 1929, as the Lowe's King's Theater. It was a vaudeville and movie palace run by Marcus Lowe himself. One of his great movie palaces, we actually spoke about it in our movie palaces show a couple years ago, episode 322, and it was magnificent with an opulent interior and more than 3,000 seats. Yeah, so by the 50s and 60s, my friend probably was catching some films here. But of course, now we're hitting New York in the 1960s, a difficult time for the city overall, and especially into the 1970s for many of its neighborhoods. Yeah, here we have that familiar chain reaction of mid-20th century dynamics, right? There's the post-war loss of manufacturing and shipping jobs. Um, There's the development of American highways. There's the lure of the suburbs. There's the new American dream defined by home ownership and driving your own car. Right. And it's playing out, of course, throughout the country and in all corners of New York, but also here in Flatbush as residents, mostly white residents, packed up and drove off for new homes on Long Island or in other parts of Brooklyn or New Jersey and taking with them their city tax revenues, further complicating the city's finances uh, and also taking with them their business patronage. It's It's a big, complicated story. And is often summed up in the term, in the phrase, white flight. Right. And this story also involves racist lending policies by banks dating back to the 1930s and housing policies established under the New Deal's Federal Housing Administration. The government at the time wanted to promote home buying. 
So they were guaranteeing low interest mortgages in the right neighborhoods across the country. So their agency, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, created color-coded maps of more than 200 cities to help banks understand which mortgages and insurance policies would give the best returns, which were the safest. So which neighborhoods to invest in and which neighborhoods and blocks to avoid. So block by block, New York and other cities did this as well. The blocks were color-coded. Yes, sometimes lines were drawn. Sometimes the whole block was colored on the map. And these colors went from green, the the newest construction and safest investments, to blue, listed as still desirable, to yellow, meaning in transition or, quote, declining, and also usually meant home to foreign-born residents. And finally, to red, the, quote, worst neighborhoods and almost always home to the black population. And this policy became known as redlining. Simply put, banks wouldn't lend to anyone in the red blocks. And this was happening in Brooklyn? Yeah, we will post um, this redlined map that was prepared in 1938. But you can see that about half of Brooklyn was already in red or yellow, um, with the largest red swath completely covering Bed-Stuy all the way up to Williamsburg. Here in Flatbush, remember that this is only the 1930s, From Flatbush Avenue to Coney Island Avenue, covering Victorian Flatbush you were just talking about, is blue and thus desirable. But most of the blocks east of Flatbush Avenue, from Church down to Farragut Road, are yellow, meaning declining. And and there's an 8 to 10 block area near Church Avenue that is actually redlined. And these policies would continue for decades. Up to the 1960s although its effects would even last much longer. But during this period, the major banks wouldn't lend to anyone trying to buy properties or insure them in these redline neighborhoods. And the results of these policies just rippled through the entire neighborhood. And if you were across or down the street from a red or yellow-lined area, you might also be hearing whispers about this spreading onto your block. And what do you think that might do to your home value? So... Homeowners then would sense change coming to their blocks, too, and many would sell out, move away while they could still get a decent price and while the government might still underwrite a mortgage for a potential buyer for their property. And so this sinister story of American history would play out for decades. There's government-sponsored disinvestment in the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. and then Add to the fact that in 1957, the Brooklyn Dodgers, the bombs, announced that they were leaving town. Yep. The King's Theater was having a hard time staying in business. It would finally shutter in 1977. Finances were strapped. Crime was soaring throughout the city. But Flatbush would be hit especially hard. But clearly, the population that was moving out would then be replaced by new life coming into Flatbush. Yes, and of course, these changes weren't happening all at once. Um, But in the mid and late 20th century, parts of this greater Flatbush neighborhood, including East Flatbush, stretching over to Nostrand Avenue, would increasingly attract immigrants from the Caribbean and West Indies. During this period, nearly a third of all immigrants settling in Flatbush were from Haiti. 
And as the Encyclopedia of New York points out, quote, there were also a large number of immigrants from Jamaica, Guyana, Trinidad and Tobago, Grenada, Panama, Barbados, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, China, Pakistan, and the Dominican Republic. Already by the early 1990s, the Caribbean population in Flatbush was already so large and significant and such a part of the city's fabric that many in the community called for greater political representation. I found an article in the New York Daily News from 1991 called Caribbean's Eyeing Council. Quote, Political representation on the city council could be on the way for New York's Caribbean Americans. Community leaders want one council seat in central Brooklyn and another in Flatbush and East Flatbush. Una Clark of the Caribbean American Political Organization said that 41% of New York's Caribbean Americans live in Brooklyn. Quote, given the number of Caribbean immigrants in Brooklyn, the community should not be locked out of the political process. We have to become a political force, she said, unquote. And spoiler alert, Una Clark, who was in that article, would become the very first Caribbean American member of the New York City Council representing this district. So that exciting new dynamic is taking place along Flatbush Avenue and much of it east of Flatbush Avenue and along Church. But meanwhile, already in the 1970s, another dynamic was at play, too. In that 1973 article in The Times, the author was writing about a new young professional type that was buying up many of those single-family homes you were talking about earlier in Victorian Flatbush. Mm Mm-hmm. Quote, they are a strongly professional bunch. The mailman along Albemarle maintains that he has 85 doctors on his route. Brooklyn College faculty can stroll from home to classroom. And that was the 70s. I mean, I I feel like it could have been written today because as we've illustrated, Flatbush's population remains so diverse. But I want to take us back to this incredibly diverse Caribbean American community that calls Flatbush and East Flatbush home today. To discuss this, Greg, we are joined now by Shelley Worrell of the organization I Am Caribbean, who in 2017 led a movement to name part of the neighborhood Little Caribbean. Welcome to the Bowery Boys, Shelley. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you for being on the Bowery Boys today. So we've been discussing the history of Flatbush and the areas around Flatbush, going all the way to the earliest Dutch days leading up to present day. So can you tell us a little bit about the organization Caribbean and how it relates to the Flatbush neighborhood today? Yeah, so um, I Am Caribbean is an organization that I started roughly um, 10 years ago and largely to bridge the gap in terms of cultural programming and representation We actually started off as a film festival. Uh, We were the first organization dedicated exclusively to Caribbean cinema in New York. Mm -hmm. And that was largely because I was working in television and film professionally in digital distribution um, and programming and really saw a lack of representation of Caribbean and West Indian culture and content. So there are several, I mean, there are, of course, a, a large body of work by Caribbean uh, filmmakers um, that did not really have that broad distribution. So 
uh, we set out to launch Caribbean uh, with the film festival, which of course was a very ambitious project. You, of course, we called it the Flatbush Film Festival because I was born and raised and still live in, in Flatbush, Brooklyn. And from there, we quickly pivoted, or I should say iterated, and we added cultural programming, art programming, um, later the Caribbean House, which is our mobile shipping container experience. Um, you'll find our annual holiday markets there, as well as we've done community-facing programming. And around that time when we were developing the Caribbean House is when we, you know, I specifically started spending more time here on the ground in Flatbush and noticed um, not only that we still had this large concentration of Caribbean people, um, but also businesses. And I also saw gentrification happening. So mm -hmm. that's when I started to ask the question of local stakeholders and elected officials, why isn't there a little Caribbean here in, in New York City? And, and when did that drive get underway then to, to rename at least part of the neighborhood Little Caribbean? Uh, in 2017. So we did a lot of outreach to stakeholders and elected officials. And we, we tracked all of those communications. And it finally came down from the mayor's office because no one really knew how to do it. Everyone was kind mm -hmm. of like, well, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Um, but no <laughs> one really knew how to actually get it done. And so finally, we ended up at the mayor's office and they advised us to actually develop Little Caribbean in partnership with the lo local business improvement districts. So that, that took place in 2017, September 2017. And I have to ask, because we've had, you know, a bit of a difficult time defining the boundaries of Flatbush, you know, so how do, do you define specifically the, the, the borders of what you consider Little Caribbean? Yeah, I mean, so we, Little Caribbean, it starts at the Flatbush Junction. Um, so mm -hmm. that's by Brooklyn College, where I also attended as an undergraduate student. And it goes up to Empire Boulevard. And so that's where you'll find entrances of both the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens, as well as um, Prospect Park, who we are both um, are supportive of Little Caribbean and of I Am Caribbean. And then it also, similarly, Nostrin from Empire, to Erasmus, Rogers, Empire to Erasmus, Church Avenue, mm -hmm. from the, the B&Q stop all the way, you know, past Utica and Utica from Eastern Parkway all the way down to Avenue D. So it's a pretty large footprint and people want it to be even bigger. People are asking us to go further north into the Crown Heights and further east into Canarsie. But of course, we just can't take up all of Brooklyn, though I would, <laughs> I would argue that, you know, we're a pretty important um, community here in, in not only Brooklyn, but in New York City. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's pretty amazing that, you know, you were born and raised there, and then you actually affected this really major change. You're continuing to, actually. You know, as a longtime resident, how, you know, how would you describe how the present interacts with the past in this area not just not just the caribbean population but also maybe especially them but just sort of generally because you can't really you know you can't mis you can't mistake like that old dutch church right old yeah so what you find you know like when you walk on the that intersection of church and flatbush um on weekends particularly you'll find a lot of caribbean vendors on you know street vendors on on those corners on the steps of the church um, as, or on the street corner selling, you know, uh, snow cones, um, flagathon. Um, he also sets up on that corner. I've seen roasted corn, um, just a ton of 
sort of new immigrant experiences juxtaposed against old New York or old Brooklyn, if you will. But the other new thing that we have, we have a lot of gentrification um, that's taking place and it's pushing deeper and deeper in the, into the community. So, you know, sometimes when I go to a roti shop, like my one of my favorite roti shops is, I don't know if I want to say it here because <laughs> it's always a, there's already a line, but you'll see a lot of you know, non-Caribbean people mm-hmm. who are there, you know, to order doubles, to order roti, and they know exactly how to order it, how they like it. Mm-hmm. And it's very, you know, it's actually, it's, it's you know, your, your heart feels warm because, of course, our community is here for everyone to enjoy and access. But it's just great to, to know how people have become experts in in these things, um, you know, things like Caribbean food, even, mm-hmm. you know, during the annual West Indian Day Parade, whether it's the carnival or the Juve celebrations, you'll also see new residents who are participating in our festivals actively. So um, those are some of the things that I've been seeing over the years. So you were raised in the neighborhood, and I'm not, you know, going to date you here, but are you talking like 90s, uh, early 2000s? I mean, I, I'm curious about what you saw in terms of change over your lifetime. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most obvious things um, or, or disturbing things, um, something that I've been, is there's a shift in, in um, the demographics. And I think it's not only in the Caribbean community, but in most, in many Black communities and also Brown communities throughout New York City, you know, the numbers have gone down, particularly for, I know, in the last census, in double digits. So, you know, gentrification is definitely displacing our community because rents are extremely high and even, you know, people can't afford to buy homes in the neighborhood anymore. I've spoken to a number of of people who are distraught because they can't afford to buy in a neighborhood where they were born and raised or grew up or have some kind of connection to. And and that's that's pretty alarming and disturbing. Um, there's a young lady that I spoke with a few weeks ago, and she said she's trying to buy back her parents' home. And when she goes on that block, she feels weird because people look at her like, what, what is she doing here? Like, she doesn't belong. Hmm. But she actually, when she was born, that's where her family lived. You know, even on my own block, which is was recently landmarked, every new homeowner, none of them have been Caribbean or even Black. Not one in the last several years. So those are some of the things I've really been thinking about, um, not only personally, but also, um, I would say, from an organizational standpoint, particularly as it relates to Little Caribbean. Well, I was going to say, I think that underscores the importance of, you know, celebrating and uh, supporting Little Caribbean, but also the organization that you created, right? It's like it, it, it seems to grow in its importance and its need as the years go by. Exactly. And so one of the things that, you know, I say often when I'm, I'm doing things like this is, you know, maybe even if I were advocating for Little Caribbean today, maybe it would not be you know, I would have more challenges and pushback because the demographics are shifting. And if I fast forward the tape into the future, like let's say into 2050, will this neighborhood still be Caribbean? I don't know. Um, The way things look, probably not. But I think it's very important to memorialize the community that made such a significant contribution, not only to our neighborhood, but to our borough and to our city and to this country whether culturally, economically, socially, politically, and, and just overall. I, I was kind of thinking about this while I was 
reading, you know, overall histories, overarching histories of Flatbush, and you get to the section in the 1950s and 60s, and certainly the 70s, when they're constant, like every source mentions white flight. And, you know, Little Caribbean and what you're celebrating is also the flip side of that story. And how do you kind of, how do you balance those two different narratives? Well, you know, the, the funny thing about white flight is now the, the white flight is actually coming back to the neighborhood because it's actually mm-hmm. a very desirable neighborhood, largely because a lot of people want that kind of Brooklyn suburban experience. Luckily, it's still very much like a neighborhood. Um, and there's also really beautiful housing stock. Right. So, you know, the flight's actually coming back um, mm-hmm. because it's affordable for some families and it can give you that sort of Brooklyn family park slopey kind of lifestyle. But yeah, I mean, I hear a lot during the um, the 70s and 80s that there were a lot of people who left to go to whether New Jersey or to Long Island, even Canarsie. Like some people left mm-hmm. and went to other parts of Brooklyn. But that's what gave way for our community to actually, you know, have a stronghold to invest um, and to become homeowners, to become business owners and to, to really become more assimilated and grounded here. Um, as new immigrants. Well, listener, here's a twist. We are about (laughs) to head out into the streets together because Shelly will be leading us on one of her authentic Caribbean flavors tours in our very next episode. And that episode is coming next week. You only have to wait seven days um, for that show. And honestly, I cannot wait. To taste it for myself. You better come hungry. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to eat anything that day, and maybe the day before. <laughs> Shelly, we can't wait to meet you in the streets of Little Caribbean. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Bowery Boys. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have many historic images of Flatbush. Of course, a few maps, including a couple that we've mentioned on this show. Plus, we'll have more about I Am Caribbean and other events this summer related relating to the Little Caribbean community here in Flatbush. A huge thank you to the Historic Districts Council and also to the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with City Council and Council Member Benjamin Kalos. Thank you so much for sponsoring today's show and the next in this exciting two-part series. That's right. We will see you in just a few days for part two of our look at Flatbush, but from the street and actually from the unique perspective of food. Bring your appetite. (laughs) So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.